0: Welcome to Trending in Education, Mike Palmer here, joined today by Dr. George Petit, who has done a bunch of work in healthcare, mental health, serving the underserved, doing lots of interesting helping profession activity. George, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Hey, thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Really excited about this
0: opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to have you because I think you're bringing some new dimensions to the conversation that I really haven't gotten deep on recently. We always start by talking to guests about their origin story, how you got to this point in your professional life. Can you catch us up on
1: how you got to this point in your career? By training, I'm a psychiatrist. My residency and fellowship training here in New York City in the public sector, which means I'm a community-based Psychiatrists dealing primarily with individuals that have serious mental illnesses, but also that are usually disadvantaged, disenfranchised, marginalized populations, been sort of committed to really figuring out ways to help individuals access care. And I've, throughout my career, I've done sort of progressively more, you know, administrative, operational, leadership-like positions, so that I could really influence the work that I was doing. So it wasn't just a dyadic relationship with a patient, but it was really more about looking at the system of care and trying to transform that to make it more responsive to the needs of the individual. So I find myself today sort of in transition looking at opportunities to further discuss issues around social justice, really thinking about how do we create a more diverse, inclusive environment for providers, but also to help individuals really that are needing help Access care in a more you know timely, affordable manner. you know the themes around social justice, equity, helping
0: others are some that have been bubbling up a lot on this show. and as has the importance of leading a mission-based organization or finding a mission-based organization, a place where you can align your passion and your goals with uh, those of the organization that you lead. you're someone who's led some really large mission-based organizations. Can you describe what that's like and some of your reflections perhaps on the challenges of that job?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the critical thing as a professional is to really be able to align your own personal, you know, values, mission, and vision of what you're trying to do with the corporation that you're in or the organization that you're in. I mean, that sometimes is hard. I mean, it really, there has to be a really tight interlinked sort of marriage between the two for you to be successful. I think that the more you can bring your passion to the work that you're doing, and if that aligns with the organization, I think the more successful you'll be leading large organizations, especially those that are in transition or those that need to really sort of embark on thinking about themselves more, you know, more specifically around a lot of the social justice issues. It's a change process, and that's usually fraught with a lot of challenges and difficulties in terms of how you know you can bring everyone on board to be able to make some of those those changes. But I think what's important is being authentic and bringing your true self and inspiring others that are like minded and have similar vision about what you're trying to accomplish. Especially if you're in the public sector, those community based not for profit organizations that are committed, you know, to working with you know the most disadvantaged are the ones where i think you have a lot of opportunity to really be able to think about how do we start to dismantle some of the systemic inequities that are in our system how do we start to think about you know providing some core social justice action you know frameworks which include you know improving access to healthcare services in a timely affordable and quality manner how do we Ensure access to affordable or low-income housing. How do we ensure food security amongst the population? That, that you know, in in New York, where we see really high rates of food insecurity. How do we provide vocational and educational opportunities for folks to be able to move into more meaningful and gainful employment? So I think that there's a whole bunch of you know opportunities out there. As long as we can align, you know, our personal commitment. To the work as well as the organization's commitment, I think that's where you have sort of a nice synergy and you can really make a lot of impact in the not-for-profit world.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. And a lot of that does speak to two aspects of the future of work. One is the future of work for people who want to get into a helping profession, who want to make an impact in terms of social justice. You know, what's the best way to pursue a career in that? You're someone who's had a long and successful career in that space. That's one aspect of it. And then the other is the folks that you serve. So if you are in a social justice capacity, if you're helping folks who are homeless or you know maybe have food insecurity or mental health challenges, how do we think about their career prospects and their life prospects and how that world is really evolving? we wind up talking about that a lot. It's an education trend spotting show. I don't think I've really had someone who's as expert as you in the space. Any thoughts on where the the work space for folks who care about making an impact and trying to help those who are underserved? Any thoughts around what's emerging in that area?
1: Yeah, I think the workforce issues and challenges are, I think, pretty much any executive leader's, you know, top five concerns right now. I think it's between COVID and the economy and I think just the challenges of trying to find You know, meaning in the work that we do is really hard, especially when, you know, as a society, we have undervalued the importance of the given professions. You know, in my last job, you know, we had individuals that were direct service providers working with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities that were making $15, $16, $17 an hour. They could make more money going to work at McDonald's or going to work at TJ Maxx and not have to deal with the realities of working with an individual so i think we have to really think about how are we how are we really conceptualizing the work that we need to not only ascribe a value to but also a monetary recompense to individuals that are doing that and i don't think that we as a society really have done that really well we can say the same thing for you know teachers or firefighters or others but you know right. certainly You know, people that are in the healing arts tend to get underpaid and the reimbursement models aren't there. And I think sometimes the margins are very thin for us to be able to really, you know, provide more living wages. And when you think about New York City, a living wage in New York City is very different than it is, you know, in Albany or in Rochester or in any other state. So I think we have to be thinking about those things. And I think for those of us that are sort of, you know, in the public sector in New York, we certainly, you know, grapple with those issues, but being able to attract, a really talented workforce is really hard so recruitment i think is critical and we have to appeal to folks because it's not just about salary even though we talk about you know salary a lot the reality is you have to be able to engage folks you know around the mission and the vision of what we're trying to do and the ability to be able to help them and it's about creating career ladders it's about saying you know you're coming in sort of at the bottom rung but like we've got a plan for how we're going to move you through the system so you're able to go from you know your bachelor's to your masters to your doctorate and all of those steps in between and we have to be able to you know as a society but also as an organization be able to support the work that has to go into helping an individual create their own professional development so i think career development is important career pathways are critical the reality is it takes time it takes yeah. a lot of effort to do that. you have to be intentional. it doesn't just happen by default. It doesn't just, just because you have all those positions within the organization doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to be able to travel those different pathways on their own. So I think you know everyone organization has to be committed to that and that requires that you know even if, you know in my role as a CEO, the door was open and if people wanted to come in and talk to me about it, I had to create that opportunity. For people to be able to like come in and talk and explore where they were at and what they want to do. One of the things that I always do as a supervisor is always ask, you know, where do you see yourself in three years, five years? And what can I do to help you get there? And I think that's a critical thing that we're missing, which is that coaching, role modeling, mentorship when it comes to people that are, you know, that we supervise or that we're mentoring or that we're trying to help them in their career development. So I think all those things are critical because, again, it's not just about the salary. It's about all these other opportunities to support an individual in their career pathway.
0: Yeah. I imagine some folks may take a psychiatrist up on an open door policy to be able to talk for a little bit. But no joking, you know, it is a time where the psychological stress that everybody is in is much higher. And then if you add to that, the giving professions, folks who are out there, really frontline workers working with folks who are suffering, it's emotional work. There's a lot of risk of burnout. Uh, I'd love to get some thoughts from you because in some ways you're in a unique position having led an organization like that, but then also having the psychology background yourself where you understand some of the genuine stresses and traumas that
1: are out there. Thoughts on all that? We're in a bit of a sticky wicket, I like to say. We are. And I think that the whole environment, I think, conspires to make it even more complicated. I think the ability to be able to have open, transparent communications around what some of the challenges are, I think are critical, right? You know, I might not be able to eradicate everything, but certainly there are ways collectively to, you know, start to address some of the issues. I think being open and flexible, I think has been incredibly helpful. I think some of the hybrid, you know, possibilities are very helpful. The reality is for those that are direct service providers, it's very difficult. You know, you can't be hybrid. You know, you got to like show up and be, you know, with the people that we serve. But I think it's about creating that work-life balance. It's about acknowledging sometimes the challenges. This is something that I learned, you know, as much as I'm a parent, I've got kids, but being able to really think about what that means like for everyone, you know, let's say the people that reported to me, you know, not scheduling a meeting at 8.30 or 9 in the morning because a lot of parents have drop-off or a lot of parents have, you know, their kids that they have to get to. So being, I think, mindful of that, and it does not take away from, you know, the corporate integrity of, you know, running an organization when you're able to be flexible, and think about like something as simple as like, Hey, let's start the meeting at 10 o'clock versus nine makes a difference for those people that are, you know, struggling as, you know, when my kids were smaller, you know, figure out how do I launch them and get them to school without having to be worried about like, Oh my God, I have to be able to multitask around these issues and have to make choices that are problematic. So I think it's being mindful of those things. It's being open to the conversation. It's not shying away from it. You know, it's important to be able to, you know, to have those discussions, but it's also about, I think really promoting people. We're promoting the notion that, you know, you really do have to have, you know, that, that work-life balance. It's about saying, like, you got to shut things off at, you know, a certain point. You shouldn't be responding to emails, you know, after a certain hour. Weekend should be sacrosanct for, you know, your family. And even though there are emergencies, there's ways of triaging that. There's ways of prioritizing things in a way that it's not everything, you know, all the time. I think, you know, we're incredibly connected to our devices to be able to disconnect again, intentionally and deliberatively, but it's about having those conversations, about creating you know, that safe space for people to be able to know that they don't have to be on 24-7. Again, and there are very specific situations where people do have to be on it, but I think that there's ways for an organization to titrate that and to take those things into account. But it's really, I think, just about having you know, an open dialogue and acknowledging that things are hard. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been with employees and they're struggling, you know, with two jobs because they can't make ends meet or they have difficulty with, you know, shopping versus, you know, medication, you know, for their family or doctors appointments, things like that. It's, again, not able to resolve everything, but certainly having those conversations and figuring out ways of supporting people differently is, I think, critical, not just for the employees, but for the people that we serve. I mean, we're troubleshooting in the same way you know, I'm, I was just talking about for our employees, we got to be troubleshooting around those issues with the people that we serve that are really struggling, you yeah. know, with, you know, housing and food and employment and all the other myriad things that are going on in society right now.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings me to the concept of the dignity of work and the idea that, you know, each of us ideally should be Granted, the opportunity to do something meaningful with our time and to ideally get paid and support ourselves as much as we can. And, you know, this is where I think it does start to bridge beyond leading within the organization. This is more really leading as well the the types of people who you've served over the years who frequently are left out of the conversation. I'd love to get a little more of your perspective on that. How do we broaden our perspective, open the aperture so that we actually are seeing? The fullness of humanity out there and figuring out the ways to really provide that empowerment and those pathways to dignity that really are part of what it means to be human.
1: Yeah. You know, I guess over time I've come to realize that, you know, I need to lead by example, right? So that takes on a whole bunch of different scenarios for me. You know, I'm a white male, but you know, I'm a gay married father of two. You know, I could really bring a very authentic perspective to the work that I do and be able to create safe spaces for individuals that, you know, need and want to be seen and heard a little bit differently. So I think that, you know, over time I've come to realize that it is important to be, you know, as authentic as possible and as open as possible. And I certainly, you know, I, I come at it with a lot of humility because despite the fact that I'm a psychiatrist and I've got an MD behind my name, doesn't mean I know everything. And it's certainly, you know, I need to continue to be able to create a wide tent, or an open tent and have as many people and as many opinions as possible. And I think that the one thing that we don't do a really good job, at, especially, you know, in our field is to include the voice of people serve, you know, those that would lived experience. We sit in rooms and make decisions, and there's never an individual that's, a recipient of care. And I think we have to change that. I think we need to change that not just at the at the decision making of an organization, but it has to be, you know, at the senior executive level, it has to be at the board level. It has to be at the city government, you know, state government level, federal government level, where those opinions are really critical because I might have the best idea about how to solve an issue. But if it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for those individuals that are, you know, for the service or needing the service or might have a better idea about how to organize those services, it'll come for no. And I think we have a lot of examples of how, you know, a lot of great ideas are out there. And yet they just, the implementation of the rollout, you know, we, we wonder afterwards, like, well, why didn't this work? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that sometimes we just don't bring, you know, the people served into those conversations. So it's creating those opportunities. It's about really finding, you know, the passion, of the work that we're doing and being able to, you know, really role model that and ensure that, you know, folks do have the opportunity to have their opinions heard as broadly as possible.
0: Yeah, makes sense. The other trend that winds up coming up pretty regularly is skills-based hiring and trying to understand the emerging competencies that are essential. This is also where typically I start to bring in the robots and chat GPT and and where will those disruptions happen It is interesting in the giving professions, in places where you actually are administering care to people, I think there's more intuitive awareness that it does require more human skills, more social-emotional competencies. But I'd be curious around your perspective, both in terms of the skills that you think are most in need nowadays, and then maybe some of the training and upskilling opportunities that might be out there. Again, both for employees and folks on a career track, but then also for other folks who maybe traditionally aren't thought of in terms of upskilling and really equipping for the future.
1: Yeah, you know, I can certainly speak, you know, much more specifically to the healthcare professionals. You know, I think there's always going to be a need for that human dyadic relationship that's not going to necessarily change. I think that, you know, a lot of the technology enhanced solutions, a lot of the possibilities around, You know, AI or machine learning, all those things I think are going to be important ancillary adjuncts to the work that we do. It might allow us to ultimately, you know, at some point down the road with, you know, more data analytics, data capabilities, we'll be able to have more actionable information at our fingertips to be able to do the work that we do more efficiently. I don't think, I hope, I don't think that my job, you know, or anyone that's, you know, a direct service provider is gonna be taken over by a machine learning algorithm. That being said, I do think that what we do need to really emphasize across the board, and it's not just I think in healthcare, is what I am seeing over the last three, four, five years is a lack of empathy, a Mm -hmm. lack of civility, especially in our discourse and in our interactions. I think we need to go back to the basics of being more civil, with each other, to each other, learning how to do that. I think that has to start early on. But I think civility and empathy are things that we're losing. And that scares me because those, I think, are core skills that we all need to have if we're going to function in in any society. But certainly, you know, when it comes to relationships that are based on a personal interaction, I think those things are critically missing at times. I wish I had an answer for how do we get there. But what I do worry about, is sort of this erosion of some of these core, basic foundational underpinnings for how we engage with each other, we interact with each other across the board. And I might disagree with you on a whole bunch of things, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a dialogue. That doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation. Um, We might not ultimately see eye to eye, but that does not mean that we can't have that conversation. And I worry that we've gotten so polarized, that becomes harder and harder to do. And I worry that polarization You know, whether it's happening in education or even in healthcare, you know, is really concerning because, you know, it has to be, it has to be different when we're engaging with people, whether we're educating or treating them. So I think that, you know, the trends are, you know, at least for healthcare, are going to continue to be. I think promoting more and more, you know, consumers, peers, people with lived experience that could really make up a lot of the work that has to go on, you know, on the front line. And then hopefully you know, the technology piece will allow, you know, providers to be more able to have those interactions, those engagements with people on a human level and not be worried about filling out the form for the insurance or all these other things that take a lot of administrative time that makes our jobs. And why our workforce, I think, has so many challenges is we spend way too much time doing non-essential administrative, non-direct clinical work, which no one that goes into this you know, this profession is ever interested in doing paperwork. So I think that there is some hopefulness on my part that some of the technologies, you know, will allow us to move away from those more administrative operational things and start going back to the basics of having a dialogue with the person in front of you and helping them figure out what do they want to do next? You know, what's their employment aspirations and how do I help them get to those life goals?
0: Absolutely. It does remind me, I did see recently, I think it was an APA article about some initial findings of folks who work with artificial intelligence, that they're more depressed and have more social anxiety, where, you know, I think if done right, these technologies will empower and enable more direct human to human contact. But I think the risk is that frequently they replace it. And that's really kind of the note of concern. We do try to end on a positive note though, George. So I'd love to get maybe some concluding thoughts or any perspectives you might have, thoughts you might have for folks who are curious about the future of learning and maybe aren't as deeply embedded in some of the domains that that you've really been operating in. I'd love to get some of your concluding thoughts.
1: I'm incredibly hopeful in that I think that there are specifically focusing in on those individuals with, you know, behavioral health challenges, those that are most marginalized and disenfranchised, those are the most impacted by a lot of the health inequities. You know, I do think that there's lots of opportunities to write some of those societal imbalances to be able to really create opportunities for folks to really attain their aspirational goals. There are evidence-based interventions that we know of. You know, I think we have the tools. It's really being able to align all of those and create those pathways for folks to be able to get to where they want to go. We've got, you know, all of the pieces. We just got to make sure that the pieces of the puzzle are all put together appropriately, that we're all aligned. When it comes to the workforce and when it comes to really being able to get more folks into the types of healthcare professional roles that are out there, I think, you know, COVID, I think the last years, you know, we've been seeing a lot more emphasis on mental health. We've been seeing a lot more emphasis on well-being. I think people aren't shying away from talking about, you know, feeling anxious or depressed. The acknowledgement that we have a significant opioid crisis, you know, an epidemic actually. I think that the more conversations we have about it, I think the more emphasis there will be on people really wanting to gravitate towards these types of, you know, roles that are in healthcare that are needed. So I think we're destigmatizing a little bit by having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot that we could do in the healthcare profession to really be able to help people. And I think anyone that's interested in helping anyone else, I think there's lots of opportunities. It's really about creating the right spaces, the right places for folks to be able to, you know, figure out how do they get the appropriate training? How do they get the appropriate entree into some of these organizations? But there, I think there are a lot of opportunities out there for folks that are interested to really be able to lend a hand. And, you know, no one should do this alone. I think that we're all Trying to figure out how to help others, and it's all doable.
0: Fantastic stuff with Dr. George Petit, who's been making a difference throughout his career and hopefully is providing some words of inspiration for those of you out there who are thinking about throwing your hat in the ring and trying to make a difference in the lives of folks who really need the help. George, thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
1: Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate you having me on.
0: And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, Please subscribe, tell a friend, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.